Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Ray, it's good to have you back up there, buddy. I'm glad you're back, glad you're healthy. It's awesome to have you up there. Uh, thrilled you're here with us this morning. If you would, grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter five. We're gonna continue our series as we study the good news of the kingdom. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus calls it the good news of the kingdom. So we're gonna study, continue studying this morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter five uh, for the bulk of it. We got some other stuff to cover this morning. So on the screen right now will be uh, some other passages that we'll get to. I just want you to know I'm not making it up. This is in scripture. So if you want to take a picture of it or write this down in your journal, in your notes, that's totally fine. Uh, but this is where we're going this morning. We're going to cover this much this morning, uh, hoping to see and understand who God is and what it is that he is doing. I don't know um, what it's like in your home um, with your kids, or maybe your kids have moved out of the home, uh, when they ask advice from you or ask your input on something. I don't know if you've experienced what I experience regularly in my home, is that my kids uh, will ask for input and then do the complete opposite of what I tell them to do. Has anybody experienced that in your life? Those of you who have grown children out of the house, is that true? Is that still true for you? Great, can't wait. So, uh, so here's the thing this morning. I'm gonna teach God's word. And for many of you, it's not what you want to hear. And so you've got the option this morning. When we're done with this, to be like, nah, I'm out. Like, I, that's not what I really wanted to hear. Give me something better than that. That's fine. You can do that all you want but I'm letting you know ahead of time, as we study and get into this, it has the potential to really hurt your feelings. Step on your toes uh, to call us out for some things. And I just want you to know you have the option, like my kids, be like, ah, you got anything else for me? I'll come back next week. Or I think if we take these things to heart, God might actually transform us from the inside out. I think that's what his word does. So I want us up front, I want you to know that. I want you to know that where we're going will not be pleasant for some of us. But I do believe God's meeting us here in this place. Because so far for me, it's been one of my favorite church services in like two years here. And I'm just hoping not to ruin it. That's, that's my goal here this morning. So let's pray and ask God for us. God, we need you. We need you for your word. It's yours. It's all yours. They're your words. Uh, spoken by your people. And so God, we need your spirit to teach us. Without your spirit, these are just black and white words on a page that give us good moral lessons. We don't want moral lessons, God. We want you today through your word. So would you meet us in this place, meet us through your scripture, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us a heart that feels your presence here today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. All right, Matthew chapter five, we're continuing what in Latin is called the Beatitudes. These are the blessings. It's how Jesus begins his epic Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five, verse five. This is the one for this morning. Blessed are, congratulations to the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. That word blessed means congratulations. It means favor to. It means flourishing are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. This one is gonna be a little tricky for us, but I want us to remember these are not virtues that we seek to attain or to accomplish. These are descriptors of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has come onto the scene. He's been baptized. He's been tested in the wilderness. And now he's declaring to the people, there's a new king in town. And this king is bringing a new kingdom with him. 
You've been following the kingdom of the earth for a long time, and now the kingdom of heaven is here. And so the call is repent. Turn from the kingdom of the earth, the ways of the earth, and the ways and the kingdoms. That king has his own ways and reign and rule, but this new king has his own reign and rule. So Jesus is laying out, this is what my kingdom looks like. And you got to decide what you're going to do with it. Will you continue in the kingdom of the earth or will you surrender to this new king in the kingdom of heaven? This is the question. So people have gathered around him. In Matthew chapter five, verse one, he sees the crowds. And seeing the crowds, it says he went up on a mountain and he sat down and brought his disciples with him. Now the crowds, we've talked about this the past few weeks, the crowd is not good old Southern church people. It's not what it is. These are broken down people. People on the outcast of society literally kicked to the edge of society, on the outskirts of town. And they've come to find out about this king who's healing people and bringing hope to the lost and the broken. So they've gathered around and now they've come from Syria and the Decapolis, the Greek areas. They've come now to him and this crowd is following him. And so he draws them all together and he begins to declare to them what the kingdom looks like. And in this sermon, he begins... Verse two, he opens his mouth, which is to say, this is important what I'm saying. This is solemn and important. And he taught them. Verse three, he begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are not to be taken individually. These beatitudes, these are not things for us to seek to accomplish. These are again, descriptors of the people of the kingdom of God. And the first descriptor is the people in the kingdom of God know they are human. They're poor in spirit. They recognize their humanity. They're spiritually bankrupt. They recognize they've got nothing to offer. It's why Jesus doesn't go to the synagogues and bring out the Pharisees first. He goes to these people who have been uh, through life, have been beat up and kicked to the curb, who understand they have nothing to offer. So they go and they've, this is who Jesus appeals to, the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does the kingdom look like? Well, it looks like this, it looks like poor in spirit. And then he continues in verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Jesus now goes from the poor in spirit and he builds on this to mourning. And we talked about this last week. This is not general mourning, although I think God meets those who are mourning. But this is mourning over our own sins, the pain of our own uh, evil and darkness inside of us. You mourn over your sin. So what Jesus is doing is he's building for us this idea. The foundation is poverty of spirit. It's bankruptcy. And then what that moves us to is a mourning. I've got nothing to offer and we mourn it. But then he says, if you mourn, you will be comforted. We studied this last week. The Greek word for comfort is parakaleo, which means to come alongside. But the picture it should paint in our minds is the idea of a, of a flame going out, smoldering ash, and then the spirit blowing fresh wind on a new oxygen that just bursts what was smoldering back into life again. And we said, it is impossible for you to be comforted without mourning. And we asked last week, when was the last time you were grieved over your sin? When was the last time you mourned over your sin? The path to new life, the path to that fresh wind begins with poverty of spirit and into mourning. And that's where we find now, chapter five, verse five, blessed are the meek. It's all building. So we've moved from poor in spirit and now we've mourned. And now the question is, what will you do with your grief? How will you handle your grief? And Jesus is telling us, well, the next step is to be meek. Now, meek is not a word that we use a lot and probably it's, it's the closest we have to the translation of this Greek word here. 
But the idea in, this, in the Greek language is translated a few different ways. One primarily way is gentle, uh, which I know we're all excited about being gentle people. So that's one way to translate it. Another way is that it's a person who's not overly impressed with his own self-importance, someone who doesn't consider himself important. That's an idea of someone who is meek. One Hebrew scholar named Jensenius says it's a lovely, godly, and modest mind which prefers to bear injuries rather than to return them. A lovely, godly, and modest mind which prefers to bear injuries rather than to return them. A person who is meek, the Greek word is praus, a person who is praus is a person who uh, finds freedom from malice, bitterness, or any desire for revenge. It communicates the idea of a teachable spirit and ultimately submission to God. <coughs> but the best way I think for us to understand it is this. Praus was a horse training term for the Greeks. It was a way that a horse trainer uh, would take a wild stallion, um, completely uninhibited, full of power and might. I mean, a stallion just full of power. And to be meek was when this trainer would take, or a rider would take this horse and would spend time training this wild stallion. So much so that it didn't compromise the power of the stallion, but instead that stallion's power came under the control of the rider. This is what it means to be meek. It does not mean to be weak, does not mean to be passive, does not mean to be a pushover. What it means is you've got the strength of a stallion under the power, the control of a rider, namely God the Father. That's what meekness is. Meekness is the understanding that just because you can doesn't mean you should. Know what I'm saying? Just because you can say something, because you can do something, doesn't always mean that you should do or say or type or post that. That's what meekness is. Meekness is strength under control. So there's a vertical component of this, of submission to God, but there's a horizontal relational component, which is that we are gentle in the way we interact with others. But again, this is all built on the foundation of the Beatitudes, which we just studied. So here's what Jesus is doing. I think he's describing someone in the kingdom of heaven who has grieved but is now accepting their grief. So I don't know if you've been around people or maybe yourself when you're mourning something. It could be the loss of someone you loved. It could be the mourning of a, of a job you loved and now you've lost or financial stability or a marriage. But when people are in the process of mourning in the midst, in the midst of grief, you often don't get the best version of that person. What you get often is you get biting comments you get the, uh, the things that they would never say to you any other time. But now because they're in this state of grief and mourning, they've turned to become a really mean-spirited person. They don't like what's been taken from them. And so now they're projecting that upon you. Has anybody experienced that before? Maybe you've become that person. Your own grief, what you're pushing out then is your own feeling of uh, entitlement. It shouldn't have happened this way. And so you project that upon other people. But I think what Jesus is describing in the kingdom is that we, become, we begin with being poor in spirit and we mourn, but we accept the fact that we have nothing to offer. We accept the fact that we are broken people that God has breathed new life into. But Jesus takes this beatitude, this blessing, he's actually pulled this from a psalm, Psalm 37. David writes this psalm, he's older in his life, and he writes these words of wisdom to music, a psalm, and he writes it down 
And this very thing, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth or inherit the land, comes right from Psalm 37. And Psalm 37, I think, is a commentary on this. It tells us what Jesus means here. So in Psalm chapter 37, it'll be on the screen, we can read together. I think this is a description of meekness. Verse one, fret not yourself because of evildoers. In our mourning, we're tempted to be worried and fearful about those who have done evil to us. When you're mourning, it's like you, you recount everything someone has ever said or done to you. And he said, but the one who is meek doesn't fret because of evildoers or not envious of wrongdoers. Verse two, because they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord. Someone who is meek, trust in the Lord and does good. Dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Someone who is meek finds delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Someone who is meek commits their way to the Lord. Submission to the Father. Trust him and he will act. He, God, will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Someone who is meek does not need to project their righteousness and justice. God will do that. Be still, verse seven, before the Lord and wait patiently on him. Someone who is meek can be still before the Lord. They can wait for him to act. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Meekness and wrath do not coexist. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. And then here's verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So Jesus pulls this beatitude directly from Psalm 37, 11. And he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that word, or earth in the Greek, is the same word for land. And taken back into Hebrew, it's the same word used here in Psalm 37. So the question is, what land is David talking about? Well, there is land that had been promised to the people of God. We spent a year last year talking about this in Exodus. God had promised land to them, and they called it the promised land. And so they're going to Canaan, this land that's overflowing with milk and honey. Beautiful land that they're, they're going to, and God has promised it to them. But from the moment God promised it to them until the time of Jesus, the people of God, the Jews, the Hebrews, had not once occupied the land by themselves. God had promised it to them. He told them to go in and conquer it, but they didn't. They compromised. And then over the next few centuries, it would change hands over and over and over again. So 750 or so years before Jesus is on the scene, the Jews somewhat occupy the land. They kind of own it, but there are other nations and, and states happening inside of the land. But from there on in 736 BC, Assyria invades and takes over Israel, takes over Palestine, this whole Canaan, this promised land. 736 BC. Less than 200 years later, 150 years later, Babylon comes in and takes it back from Assyria. The Jews still live there, but now it's run by Assyria. And now, though, it's run by Babylon. After that came the Persians, and the Persians overthrow Babylon, and they take the land. And then the, then the Greeks come in, and they take uh, the land from the Persians through a war. There's a movie about that. Guys with a bunch of abs. 300 was the movie. And then in 63 BC, uh, General Pompey comes in on behalf of Rome and sieges Jerusalem and takes over. 
This land for the people of God had become their identity. It's what they felt entitled to because God promised it to them. But they had never actually occupied and lived freely in this land. And so at this point, as Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews are looking for a Messiah. But the Messiah isn't the point. The land is the point. They want a Messiah because they think the Messiah, the Savior, is going to get them their land back. So at the time of Jesus, any good Jew who who knows anything about God understands that there's land for them. It's the ambition of every Jew is to be free in their own land that God had promised to them. This is their goal. It's essential for them uh, to the flourishing of life. They would feel like nothing is right in the world until we get our land back. And so the Jews are desperate for this land. And what they've seen over, uh, over, what, seven or eight centuries is that this land is occupied by force. That's how you get the land. The problem for the Jews is they have no force. They don't have military might. They've been so occupied by other countries, they've got nothing to offer. But the tensions are mounting. The Roman Empire is now in charge of Palestine, of Jerusalem and Galilee, all of that area. And so now what's happening is the people of God, the Jews, the tension is rising and they're desperate for their own freedom. They're finding themselves not necessarily persecuted, but not accepted in the marketplace. There's a number of things that are happening. And so what happens is there's four main religious groups for the Jews that rise to power. And every Jew hitches their wagon to one of these powers, one of these religious institutions. The first is called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees would be considered the religious elite. And they were going to get the land back through religious power. They were going to uh, over-religiousize Rome and in that way they would get the land back. They would evangelize the Jewish faith and if they would grow in number, that's how they were going to do it. That was the goal of the Pharisees, of this sect of of the Jews was to get the land back through religious power. Another group is called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees have found themselves kind of intermingling with some of the cultural elite of the day. And they found themselves that, hey, they recognize if I give in a little bit here, I get some more here. And so the Sadducees, their method of getting the land back was compromised. They had political power. They thought they could get the land back with political power. So no Messiah is coming. We want the land back. Let's do it through religious power or political power. The fourth group is called the Essenes, and they actually are very passive. Like, they aren't fighting for the land. In fact, they've gotten so holy, they've separated themselves from everyone else anyway. And so they've taken all their kids out of Jewish school. They've taken all their kids out of the the society. They've separated themselves and have focused on their own personal holiness. And their idea is, if anyone's going to get the land, it's going to be us. We're going to be ready for it. We're going to purify ourselves to get the land. And the final group is what's called the Zealots. They're called the fourth sect of Judaism. And the Zealots were zealous. They were passionate. They were passionate, but they were passionate about this land. And they were particularly passionate about overthrowing Rome. Problem was, there wasn't a a lot of them, a lot of Zealots. But they had this idea and they had their own name that was the same name of a dagger they would carry in their cloak. And the way they were going to overthrow Rome was one dagger murder at a time. That's how they were going to do it. Sneak up behind Roman centurions and kill them. But their biggest problem was the Jews, they felt, stood in the way of getting the land back by force and power. 
So they became more zealous. So with this in mind, the Jews are looking for a Messiah to be a tool for them to get the land back. It's not about the Messiah. This is about what they think is rightfully theirs, what they think uh, they are entitled to. And he's delivering this sermon and blessing. And they're hoping for a Messiah to talk about force and power. But this Messiah talks about poverty of spirit. He talks about mourning. And now he talks about meekness. So this message to the Jews is revolutionary and controversial because it goes completely against the kingdom of the world. It goes completely against the ways of of the world. The kingdom of that world, which I think was so different from ours, They relied on might and violence, both physical and verbal violence. And back then, not today, but back then, the religious kingdoms had gotten in bed with the worldly kingdoms and adopted their tactics. They'd gotten to the point, these religious uh, powers had gotten to the point where as long as someone came along claiming their same belief, they would look past their obvious flaws and imperfections because they were gonna get them what they wanted. And I know things are so different. We don't do that anymore. I'm just saying they used to do that back then. All they wanted was their land back. So they turned a blind eye and the belief was might makes right. Don't care how we get there, as long as we get there. God gave us the land We're going to get it back. It doesn't matter how we get there. So 2023, I think we find ourselves in a similar situation. I think there are things that God has promised to the church. I think there is a kingdom of heaven that he's promised to us. There's flourishing and there's all of those things there. But what's happened for us is we've gotten tired of waiting And so we've adopted and we've hitched our wagon to certain political and cultural leaders that we think will get us back what we think we so rightfully deserve. The problem is, if the religious powers get the land back, who gets the glory? Well, the religious powers. If the political power gets the land back, who gets the power? Who gets the glory? The political power. If the separatists get the land back, who gets the power? Who gets the glory? Well, they do in their holiness. And if, if the zealots, those who are passionate about their right to have daggers, if, if they get the land back, who gets the glory? Well, they do. But if the meek get the land, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. My fear for us in the world, the culture, in this cultural moment we find ourselves in is that we might get spiritual land back but it won't be for the glory of God. It'll be for the glory of a political party. It'll be the glory of a particular denomination. It'll be for the, the glory of a particular voting party. And so while back then, they're desperate to get something they think they so rightfully deserve, they've adopted the world's practices. I just want you to know we are in danger of the very same thing, church. There are things that God has promised to us that if the meek get it, God gets the glory. I want you to notice the verb Jesus uses here. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They don't conquer, they don't take back, they don't seize, they inherit. And for people like you and me, us poor people, 
that don't have an inheritance waiting for us. You know what I mean? Like we don't have parents who have an inheritance waiting for us. If you're like me, you can't stand the rich kid who has the inheritance because that kid has no idea how good he has it. It's that kid that you played baseball with who had all the right gear but was terrible at it. It's that kid. It's the kid who just because daddy owns a company, he gets the arm sleeve and he gets the Reebok, Reebok pumps, but there's nothing else to show for it. So when we read, I'm sorry, uh, when we read, that, that was personal for me and I'm very sorry. When we read inherit, right, we think laziness and passivity. Inheritance is not something you earn from achievement. It's something you are given through relationship. You don't earn inheritance. You are gifted inheritance simply because of who your father is. And I think maybe we need to stop bucking against that and start to accept it. You don't earn inheritance. You're because that's the whole point. It's the whole point of the gospel. The earth is his. The land is his. The, the moral land is his. The moral landscape is his. The world is his. The problem creeps in when we think it's ours. It's his. And it's his to do what he wants with it. It's his. And he has chosen in his grace and mercy to give the land to his people. And this is not just about Canaan. This is about the kingdom of heaven. This is about heaven itself. And Jesus has, God has decided that he will grant the land as inheritance to his sons and his daughters. Not the ones who fight for it, not the ones who earn it, the ones who simply have relationship with him. And so here's something we have to wrestle with this morning is that meekness is the way of the kingdom of heaven. And I know you might not like that, I know the Southern part of us hates that. And we begin then, because we don't like it, we begin to think things like God only helps those who help themselves is scriptural. That's not in the Bible anywhere. But because we're so desperate for it, it's like we've forsaken actually believing what God says. It's the way of the kingdom of heaven. It messes with us. This is not how our world works at all. Let's talk politics. You know any meek politicians? I'd love to meet them. That would be amazing. Any, any politicians who say, no, I'd, I'd rather absorb injury than project it on you? You know any politicians who have a gentle spirit about them? Let's talk about the sports world. We could talk pro sports if you want. Have you met any meek pro athletes? Have you seen any of them? It's always the loudest ones, the most, the most uh, braggadocious ones. They get the long contracts. They get the extensions. The quiet, meek ones don't. You know this because your kids play Little League. You understand how it works. Let's be honest about it. It's not the best ball player that gets to start. It's the kid whose mama is the loudest. That's who gets to start. It's the one who complains the most, who gives the most to the booster club. Let's just call it what it is. That's how it works. You know this about our world. The meek are not rewarded. Entertainment. Let's talk social media. Do meek people on social media get a lot of likes? No, no, no but the ones who, who take a polarizing side or who are loud and in front about it. Let's talk about your job. Has meekness gotten you a raise? Has meekness gotten you a promotion? But you know that guy who got the promotion and he is the opposite of meek, but he was the squeaky wheel, so he got the grease. Let's talk about school students. How's that going for you? How's your meekness going for you? This, mess, this is not how our world works. And so what's happened for us as Christians is we've given up the way of the kingdom and adopted the way of the world. 
and said, man, if that's what advancement looks like, and then we say things like, yeah, but then when I'm the boss, I'm gonna change everything so everybody loves Jesus. No, you're not. Because you already compromised on your way up there. No, you're not. So it messes with us. But this is the way of the kingdom, and it has been since Jesus came to earth. When Mary finds out she's pregnant, she writes a song about this and says, this is what's going to happen because it's happening to me. Luke chapter one, verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me Marcarius, blessed, same word in the Beatitudes. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. You know what meekness does? It scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. It's only in God's economy and his kingdom this happens. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Meekness is the way of the kingdom. Please hear me, not weakness. This is strength under control. It is not strong to run your mouth. That is cowardice. That is weakness. It is not strength that makes you arrogant about your work ethic. That is cowardice. It is not strength to verbally and physically assault your wife. That is cowardice and weakness. Strength is under, or meekness is understanding just because you can and have the power to doesn't always mean that you should. It's power under control. So here's where I think meekness helps us. There is a what to believe. There is something for us to believe. And then there is a how. There's how we hold that belief. There is a right way to believe. But there's also a right way to hold what it is that we believe. So here's an example. If I were to give you something, some fine china, and I were to tell you this is fragile, I even put it in a box and I write fragile on it. And you take it <laughs> and you take that box, right? And I've told you it's fragile and you know it's fragile and you're telling me, yes, I know that it's fragile. And then you throw it against the wall. It shows me that you didn't actually think it was fragile. Because if you thought, if you had a belief that it was fragile, it affects how you carry it. It affects how you hold on to that very thing. We have a right way of believing. We have a right doctrine as followers of Jesus. And we have a right way to carry that doctrine. We have a right way. So tonight's the Super Bowl and it's two teams that nobody cares about. So we won't talk about that, but we can talk about football and college, college football. So college football, all right, let's talk about you Georgia fans. All right, here's what I love about all college football fans. So you say things like, um, uh, I'm, we're national champions. It took us 40 years to get back there, but we were, four, we're national champions and we've been two years in a row. And so let's say you've got a game on a Saturday and let's just say you're playing Vanderbilt, okay? And I understand as a Florida fan that Vanderbilt can beat you, but that's, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but you as Georgia fans understand we don't lose to Vandy. We don't do that, right? So you're playing Vandy and you're between the bushes, the hedges, and you're playing Vandy. And... Uh, because you know, right, because you have a belief that Georgia is better than Vanderbilt. Does anybody argue with that? Okay, Georgia is better than Vanderbilt, and so you believe that. 
First quarter comes around, and for some fluke thing, uh, they get a fumble recovery for a touchdown, and then another kind of fluke 90-yard run, and they're winning in the first quarter 14-7. to You believe that it's Vanderbilt, and so you're fine. Some of you are freaking out, but if you say you believe Georgia is better than Vanderbilt, then you know in that moment, we're going to be fine, we're going to make it. Then there are some of you who say you believe that Georgia is really good, and in that moment, Kirby Smart becomes the devil, uh, Stetson Bennett should get senior discounts at restaurants. Like you, you finally start to understand and you start to say things, right? So you, you say you believe that Georgia will beat Vandy and yet when things get tough, you let go. You actually, the way you're holding that belief proves to me you actually don't believe that. So when it comes to following Jesus, there are right, right ways for us to believe. But there's also a how we hold what we believe. And how we hold what we say we believe is evidence of whether we believe it or not. Let me say it again. How we hold what we believe is evidence of whether we actually believe it. There is a right way to believe. There's also a right way to carry what it is that we believe. And that way is meekness. James is speaking to the church in Jerusalem And they've got some people who have risen and who have become less than meek in the way they believe, right? The the ways they believe about Jewish faith and tradition and what should happen and who should have to do what. And at the very same time in James chapter three, James is telling them, you gotta tame your tongue. It's gonna start a fire, tame your tongue. He says, you think you are holy, then show it to me by the way you, you hold your tongue. But he continues with this in James chapter three, verse 13. James says, who is wise and understanding among you, church of Jerusalem? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Okay, so you know what is right. Good for you, church. You know, like you got right doctrine. Now I'm telling you, James says, I'm telling you now to show me how you hold that doctrine. How do you hold right belief? You do it in the meekness of wisdom. And now he's gonna compare worldly uh, ambition with it. Verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. What he's saying is, if you're gonna carry that right doctrine with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, you're a liar. Those things don't coexist. You can't carry the truth of the gospel and still be a jerk. You can't. That's what he's saying. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes from down from above. This is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And you're like, James, how do you really feel about it, though? What are your real thoughts? Like, do you hear what James is saying? You can believe the right things and carry them in the wrong way, and it's demonic. And you know that's true because you know Christians who you think believe the right things and yet are complete jerks about it. For many of you, your wrestle with Jesus is not about Jesus. It's about the way the church has carried doctrine. That's your issue. And James is saying, that's why it's demonic. It leads people away. It's demonic. It's unspiritual. For where jealousy, he continues in verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Amen? But the wisdom from above, here's what meekness is. It is pure. It's not tainted. There's no compromise. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial 
and sincere. And then watch this. Here's how you know. Verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When we carry right doctrine the right way, what is left in our wake is a harvest of righteousness. When we are meek and humble in the way that we understand the gospel and in the way that we carry it, what's left in our wake is peace and righteousness. If we believe the wrong thing and carry it the way the world carries their doctrine, what's left in our wake is striving and sarcasm and anger and wrath and malice. There is a what to believe and there is a how to hold what we believe. It's in every area of our lives. Let's just, let's just keep getting in trouble. So politics. As a follower of Jesus, there is a right way to believe about politics. And there is a right way to hold what you believe about politics. There is a right way to believe about cultural issues. There is. And then there's a right way to hold it. And I need some of you right now to type a reminder in your phone for November because you're going to forget it by then. But there's a right way in the election cycle. There's, there are right beliefs that we as Bible-believing followers of Jesus believe about cultural issues. And on the flip side you don't get to act like a complete jerk about it. There's a right way to hold what we believe. There's a right way for us to believe about sexuality. There's a right way. It is biblical to believe what we believe about sexuality and about marriage. And there is a right way to hold that. And it is not slander. And it is not making fun and sarcasm. There's a right way to hold it, and it's in the spirit of meekness. There's a right way to believe about economics. There's a right way to believe about parenting. And there's a right way to hold what you believe about parenting. You cannot be smug, proud, sarcastic, and mean-spirited people and at the same time say you believe the gospel. It does not work. I think there is no way to actually believe what we believe and not be meek people. To say that you believe that you are a sinner saved by grace and then be sarcastic and mean-spirited to other sinners who sin differently from you means you don't understand what you just said you believe. If you say that you believe that Jesus rescued you in your sin and you are poor in spirit and you grieved over it, you have no right to run your mouth or your fingers about some other political party or belief system. There is a right way to believe. I'm not in meekness. I'm not saying we're passive and we just compromise. I'm saying the opposite. No, no, no. You hold it. And then you hold it in the way it deserves to be held. To believe we are saved by grace makes us a meek people. But again, this is not a call. The Beatitudes are not a call for us to try to be more meek. I think the more you try to be meek, it's like you're trying to be humble. I'm gonna work harder to be humble. Well, and then you're gonna feel really good about how humble you've gotten, which defeats the entire purpose. But I do think this meekness is an indicator. It's the way your check engine light works on your car, which some of you have going off and you need to see somebody about it. It's not going to fix itself. So here's the indicator. If you found yourself full of slander and malice, If you found yourself verbally or physically violent, it's an indicator that you don't actually understand the gospel. 
if you come in contact with a clerk at a grocery store who obviously has a different idea of sexuality than you do, and you can't treat that person with respect, you don't know the gospel. You don't know it. It might just mean that you feel entitled to some land, some spiritual land or moral land, and not that you feel poor in spirit. Meekness is the character of a follower of Jesus. Here's what meekness looks like. It's not slander and shouting and sarcasm and attack. That's the way of the world. But the way of the kingdom of heaven is truth from my mouth with quiet in my heart. Yes, be truthful. But you can't just say, sorry, I'm just being honest. That's not how it works. Jesus calls this truth and grace. That's what he calls it. Scripture tells us to speak the truth, but to do it in love. It's a settledness in your heart. You know why we speak with slander in mouth? Because our hearts aren't settled in the truth. And we've got some chip on our shoulder we're trying to prove. I don't think Christians should have chips on their shoulder. There's nothing for you to prove. Jesus proved you have nothing to prove. If we don't come back to spiritual poverty, we will always be carried away by the ways of the world. So we've got to come back there. The gospel calls us out for the people that we really are. The cross calls us out. If you're so good, why did Jesus come? If you've earned the land, why did Jesus die? It proves us. Meekness is the way of the kingdom because it's the very heart of our king. You wanna know why meekness matters? Because that's who Jesus is. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who, are late, who labor, Heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I'm meek, I'm proud, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If anyone ever exhibited power under control, it would be Jesus, yes? Jesus on the cross has the power to call down legions of angels, and he doesn't. Jesus, in the midst of the Pharisees, could do all sorts of things to, him, to them, and yet he doesn't. At the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is being arrested and Peter takes out his sword and as a fisherman misses everything he was swinging at and he chops off a guy's ear and Jesus says him, put that sword away. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. You want to talk meekness, let's talk Jesus. It's not cowardice, it's the opposite. It's power under, under the submission of God. In fact, when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, he came riding in on a donkey, not a war horse. He came into the biggest week of his life to be crucified, to, to exact war upon the enemies and principalities. And he doesn't come in on a war horse. He comes in on a donkey to fulfill what was prophesied by Isaiah, that he would be humble. He would be meek and mounted on a donkey. He had submission to the Father. So now the argument is, yeah, yeah, but he will come on a horse. I read Revelation. He's coming on a war horse. Great, I'll give you that. Here's the problem. He's leading his army into battle and yet he's already drenched in blood. So even leading us into war on a war horse, he's leading as a sacrificial lamb. It's his blood on him. This is who he is. He is meek. Matthew chapter 12, uh, the Pharisees are trying to prove Jesus wrong and catch him in lies like they always do. And Jesus has a moment to do something to them. But Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, they went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. 
But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Might sound passive to some of you. Why don't you fight? Fight or flight. It seemed like flight kicked in for Jesus, maybe. But many followed him and he healed them all and and ordered them not to make him known. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And you're like, yeah. And then the next verse, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. Yeah, he's proclaiming justice to the Gentiles, but he's not going to quarrel about it. He's not going to demonstrate in the streets. Why? He's meek, and here's how we know it in verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. The truth is you and I need Jesus to be meek. We need him to be meek because he can and he has the authority to cast all of us out. He can. He has the right. A bruised reed was, they would use reeds to make instruments. <clears throat> and if it was bruised, it was, it was useless. So they would break it and discard it, throw it in the fire or something like that. A smoldering wick, you have candles in your house right now that just don't light, but you have them there because of decoration. But you know, they, they, they've stopped lighting months ago. <clears throat> Jesus has the right to take us, bruised reeds, broken people who have nothing to, to offer, nothing of value at all. We who are poor in spirit, he has every right to throw us aside and move on to somebody else, to start all over. Every right, but he won't. We, in our mourning, find ourselves like smoldering wicks and he has every right to snuff us out. And yet he doesn't. He breathes the fresh wind of the spirit into us. So why is the kingdom made of people who are meek? Because our king is meek. And when we get away from meekness, we portray our king to be something other than what he is. This is who he is. And you and I need him to be this way. And the world needs a king like Jesus. And that person you share a cubicle with, that boss that you complain about, that coach that you can't believe starts the other kid instead of your kid, they don't need to be snuffed out. They need a spirit of meekness to draw them to the heart of our king. Blessed are those who are meek. The land is yours. You're gonna get it. Not by might, not by force, not by power, but by quiet and gentle submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. In the way we live, in the way we speak, and the way we type. Jesus wins. Let's live like it. Do you bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't know what your week has been like. Some of you I do. I just wonder how your heart is today. I wonder if you have felt um, the rise of malice and slander and vengeance in your heart. Maybe it's someone who's hurt you. Maybe it's a... Um, issues deep down for you with some sort of political party. Maybe it's the way somebody handled something at your workplace or handled something with your child, something in a school. I want to encourage you as quickly as you can to run back to the gospel before you adopt the ways of the world to bring in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't work that way. 
And culturally, we are up against some things as followers of Jesus. But I just hope we don't miss the Messiah in the midst of it. A gentle spirit. It's my hope for us as a church that we would be a meek people who are known for our consistency and steadfastness, who are known for the fact that we speak the truth with a quiet heart. There's a right way to believe. There's a right way to hold that belief. Maybe you're here today and um, you need to hear there's a Messiah who is gentle and lowly in heart. And while you feel discarded and pushed to the edges, like you're not good enough, you've got nothing to offer, I wanna tell you that's exactly where you need to be. And this king isn't like the earthly kings. He hasn't come to take the trash to the curb. He's come to breathe life into your dry bones. If you would trust him, that he is who he says that he is. We serve a king who is meek, building a meek kingdom. Father, we love you. We are, um, many of us, painfully aware of the poverty and bankruptcy of our spirit. And you're telling us that we should be happy about it, that that's right where you need us to be. So God, would you remind us of that today? It's in that place that we find you. And for some of us, the past week has been full of mourning, of just coming face to face with the reality of our brokenness and the evil in our hearts. And God, I pray that you have breathed fresh life into people. And so now, God, we've got a choice to make with this power you've given us through this new life, this spirit, this power of right doctrine and understanding. So God, would you keep us free from the tactics of the world and draw our hearts to the way of the kingdom of heaven, of a king who doesn't break bruised reeds and snuff out dying embers, but a king of resurrection, king of hope, a king of a gentle spirit. In those places in our hearts, we want to push against that because it goes against everything we thought we believed. God, remind us of who you are. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.